Thursday, September 17th, and it's time for Neuroscientist Talk Shop, the University of Texas at San Antonio's podcast on neuroscience research. Today's guest is Kreshmir Yosik. He is professor of mathematics, bio, biology, and biochemistry at the University of Houston. Uh, Kreshmir has worked on a wide variety of biological problems, lots of which, but not all of which, are neuroscience problems. And maybe it's... Uh, because of being a mathematician, your tools are so portable, you can take them around and use them for lots of different problems. And so maybe one of the things we could ask him today is how a mathematician chooses what problems are interesting to study and which ones are less. So, uh, so Krishmir? Hello, thanks for having me on the podcast. And with us today are Todd Troyer. Hello. And Fidel Santa Maria. Hello. And me, I'm your host, Charlie Wilson, sitting in for Salma Karashi while she is on sabbatical. So, Krishmir, lots of your work is on how the brain uses large numbers of neurons together at one time to perform computational tasks. And this is an old problem for neuroscientists, but for a long time it didn't matter so much. But now it does, because now we can really record large numbers of neurons at one time while the brain is performing a computational task. And it turns out to be a little tricky to figure out what to do with them and how to analyze data sets like that. Uh, So can mathematicians come to our rescue on this? And if so, uh, how do they do it? Uh, Yeah, I wish I could answer that question. But um, so first... You know, to to just take a step back, I, the way I came to this is really from uh, mathematically more defined questions. That is to characterize the responses of cells that are in networks. Right? This is a much more well-defined question where you can just say, if I connect cells in a particular way, how will the network respond to an input? Right? So that's the question of actually understanding why it is connected in that particular way to perform the computations that it does is much more complicated, right? And uh, and so I found that, over time, uh, less satisfactory just looking at the correlations and so on of these responses and how the uh, connectivity shapes the responses of the cells. So looking at what these cells actually do and why are they connected in a particular way for computational purposes, that's, I think, where I'm going to going to try to head to in the future more. Um, <clears throat> but how can how can mathematicians help in that respect? It's, well, um, it's clear that uh, the statistical approaches and the mathematical approaches that have characterized or used in neuroscience up to relatively recently are going to be insufficient to really answer these questions. I mean, first of all, these data sets are uh, um, enormous. I mean, they're, they, uh, they're very high-dimensional. Even just the visual visualization techniques that are going to be necessary to try to uh, understand what's going on are going to be uh, very different from what's been do- what's been done in the past. So, uh, computer science and mathematics is going to computer science uh, statistics and, and uh, mathematics is going to be essential for for just even starting to analyze these data sets. Um, yeah, and, and uh, how to how to actually answer the questions that we're interested in uh, that's a um, that's a going to be a very difficult question. I mean, it's going to be something that's going to be taking take us probably the next 20, 30 years at least, maybe more. Yeah. Maybe you could say something about 
what you have been doing that in that regard in okay. with oh visual so requirements. yeah so uh, so in that regard so the first step that we can take certainly is to see to what extent we can take the ideas that have uh, carried us so far in identifying the responses of individual cells and see how those map to uh, responses of uh, groups of cells, the particular cells that are uh, uh, recorded are close together, maybe in, in a volume of, um, in a small volume of the visual cortex, right? So how do, um, how do correlations change between cells? How do correlations change in response to an input? Uh, so is there a tuning to the correlations? Are they, are they going to change uh, depending on the state of the network, for instance? Right? Is, there, uh, is there an effect of, uh, of attention or of um, the particular type of inputs on the correlations between the cells? Um, and that can then be connected in particular to, hopefully that we can then connect that to the uh, information about the stimulus that this, cell, that this group of cell carries. Right? So that would be in line. Uh, I see this as taking the tools with a, we have a well-controlled stimulus. We have a recording from not one cell now, but from a group of cells that's, that we can characterize pretty well. I see this as a natural next step that kind of builds on what we've done, uh, or what experimentalists, I mean, but what experimentalists have done in a way they've analyzed uh, data from single cells, now extending this to the, to the network of cells. Uh, whether that, that sort of approach, so that's something we've been uh, involved in, I think that's going to be fruitful. It's certainly going to tell us something. But I'm not sure that that is just going along that direction, recording more and more cells and trying to present uh, you know, simple stimuli in a well-controlled setting over and over again to get some sort of statistics of the <clears throat> uh, response of this population to this stimulus in the way that uh, at least some experiments have done in the past, whether that's going to answer uh, the large questions about how the brains operate in general. So I think we're going to have to st start thinking as we can record for more cells, not just start thinking about how to better analyze the data, but also how to design experiments in such a way that we can make use of this, this new setting. So I, it, I think it's an interesting one, one aspect of this question that I always find interesting. So a lot of people want to say, oh, we're going to get all this new data, this new complicated data, we're going to need new mathematics. How can the mathematicians come, or whoever the cavalry for the day is, uh, that we need new ideas to do that? And it's an interesting question whether we really, do we need new mathematics, or do we just need more mathematicians? In the sense that you get different people from different disciplines ask the question in different kinds of ways. And sometimes the ideas are not necessarily new, uh, but they have new combinations or new emphasis that people are now looking at because of the questions. So I, I think there's an idea that we're going to just get this new measure of interaction or something that's going to make everything clear, whereas it may be more that bits and pieces of what we already understand or already use are being used in new ways that also help to make things clear, but it's not like... A, uh, you know, a, a, a new sword or something like that. And I don't know what you think about uh, whether we need new mathematics or do we need more mathematical rigor to the ideas that we have already? Well, I think both. I mean, I think we need both more mathematics. But it's certainly true that uh, we will need uh, also new ideas, right? We need new, more people. And it's not necessarily as connected, right? I mean, there is always the picture, well, not always, but we have this picture of these 
enormous advances that occur with a single figure in science making uh, having a particular insight. I mean, and I think over the year, it's not necessarily true. It's frequently a group of people and a particular idea that percolates through the community, and then one particular person crystallizes it particularly well or writes it down particularly well and uh, uh, receives credit for that idea, right? So I think that frequently has happened in the past and will continue happening in the future. So, and the more people you have in a particular area, the more likely it is that something like that is going to occur. Um, But also that that the tools that have been... uh, have been proven to work well so far are developed further, scaled up, and are better used to uh, interpret the data that you have. Right? So it's, I think both of these directions will have to be exploited. Well, I have a, just a sort of question <clears throat> about what a population of neurons is, it, is expected to tell us. I mean, what are we supposed to learn from it? Is it just a big uh, soup of neurons that are all basically giving us a little piece of the information, we just have to figure out how each neuron's contribution is adding up as a whole, or do we expect groups of neurons to be organized in the subcategories that, that each one each one of which is acting independently of the others, or do we expect to look around in a population of neurons and find you know, hub neurons that tell us 80% of everything and then all the rest of the neurons are just adding their own two cents and well how's that going to work out yeah that's a good question I mean uh, I, I believe personally that um, that as we record for more and more cells the bias that we had that, that was necessary when we recorded from single cells um, or small groups of cells and that bias was there because there was bias previously because um, uh, Recordings in vivo, in particular, in primates and and, and mammals in general, on all on all animals, you had to identify cells that were responsive to the particular stimulus that you were using, right? And then, sort of stimulus, both the stimulus was well controlled; it was relatively simple stimulus, and the cells uh, that were recorded from uh, were usually uh, cells that perhaps were represented, perhaps not, of all the cells that. Uh, that are involved in that particular computation. Those are the ones that respond the best. And, <clears throat> and um, therefore, um, could have been those that were particularly particularly strongly tuned, well, I guess by choice, that were particularly strongly tuned to that particular stimulus that was, that was used. And that may uh, not be very typical of the entire population of cells. The entire population of cells, I believe, uh, is more likely to represent much, much more... Uh, Heterogeneous information much more heterogeneously and respond in a, in a wide variety of ways, uh, and uh, respond not only, of course, to the stimulus but also reflect uh, reflect um, uh, certain internal state expectations about the stimulus that are there, and all of that is going to be tang- I think is tangled up in some way in the population response. How to then untangle that? Right? How to get well? This part is then due to. Uh, this this part is due to the stimulus and represents the stimulus. This part, this particular aspect of the stimulus, this part of the response respect uh, uh, represents a different aspect of the stimulus, and so on. And, and a different part yet respond, uh, represents a um, internal expectation about the stimulus, and so on. Or and maybe this is what characterizes atten- uh, the attentive, how attentive the 
um, animal loss to that st- to that stimulus, and so so there's all these different things that are probably all entangled in some way, some non-trivial way, certainly not in a way that's easily disentangled in the neural response, and not only in a certain area, but <clears throat> and probably across the entire cortex. And how to make sense of that? <clears throat> I think that's going that's the difficult question. Yeah. So there's a there, there is a dimension along <clears throat> which experimentalists always live. Yeah. At one end of the dimension, I have some kind of really strict hypothesis. And I have decided that I think the network works like this. And I'm really just looking for the few example cells that proves that my hypothesis are right or refutes it. And the other one is I walk into the network with a pretty much an open mind, and I try to discover the pattern within the data, and everybody does some of both of those things. But when data was scarce and hard to get, we moved in the direction of having these really strong hypotheses that required less data to get an answer. And as data becomes uh, common and rich, we I expect that we would move in the direction of these just discovery approaches where we collected a lot of data and then, then do some work on it, mm-hmm. the nature of which I don't know, but maybe you do, uh, that allows us to discover what's happening yeah. Is there magic line? I think Todd was saying there's no magic line. So, so it's possible, but it, one has to be extremely careful. And I think that uh, it, it's something we also implicitly do, and it's maybe you know it's now coming to focus in the, in the psychology literature. When you take that exploratory approach, um, you run into a problem of simply discovering things that work out in a single experiment or even in a group of experiments, but are not true in general or just a statistical artifact. So. Um, Andy Gelman has a, a very good um, article about this called the, the Garden of Forking Paths, which I recommend uh, is for anybody who does statistical analysis on any any type of data, is that when you analyze data frequently, you come up with some hypothesis, but you kind of modify it, so it's kind of a forking path that you take. And that process itself can easily lead you down the wrong path and lead you to conclusions that are simply due to the fact, to the consequence of the way you've done the analysis and not really represent some sort of truth, right? I mean, the, the easiest way to think about it is, is this problem of multiple comparisons that when you, you, know, you just throw a bunch of things at the wall and see what sticks. I mean, but that is, that is not what most people do, right? Most people are aware of that, but there's a more insidious way of just kind of adjusting your hypothesis a little bit at a time, right? And then coming to something, well, it looks like that, right? And then... But even that can really frequently lead you astray. So just can, it, there's, it's possible, certainly, right? If it's done right, and trying to see what the what not starting necessarily with a hypothesis. This is what I want to prove. It is and trying to see the let the data tell you what what is actually there. But that's also not what I'm trying to say. It's, that's also not without its uh, its dangers. But so one way to, I think one way to look at that is that it's one way to look at that is it's really no different. It's just a question of whether the when does the data exist, <laughs> in the sense that in the first way to think about experiment, you don't the data doesn't exist until you do the experiment, um, and then the other way is like well you collect a ton of data and it's there so it exists in some sense, but if it if it isn't looked at, you know it doesn't make a sound, yeah. like it's not really there until you analyze it, 
And then the process of analyzing it is very analogous to making the experiment. And so you have the same questions of uh, reproducibility and, and ends and power and stuff like that that you have to worry about. And the question is, I guess the interesting question now, given that things are going in a more of a mix of those two kinds of approaches, is the, are the safeguards or the practices that have been in place about doing controlled experiments, are they good enough? And that mindset good enough to make well-controlled experiments in a big data kind of world, or are they different? I mean, there's problems with having well-controlled experiments in a, in a traditional experimental world in terms of going after positive results and publications and high-profile stuff that's the same. Uh, but I think it's an interesting question whether it's any different. Um, I think... I think um <clears throat> For example, um, the math that we that that we use now is to analyze a very specific type of experiments that have have been developed over 120 years, uh, and and we could continue the, the things that we continue doing the experiments that way. I mean, there, there's this idea that with big data is just collecting more data, but if the experiment is the same, uh, which is an impulse response. Uh, experiment. The paradigm of mapping the brain has been an impulse response, right? That's Say what you mean by that. Yeah. Uh, you just clap once, very briefly, and then you see the response of the neurons, and then you track that response, and then you assume that that, that it's just a series of, of of little boxes that are connected, and eventually you get an output. Right? So that, often the clap is an electrical stimulus. And, ele and that's how Sherrington, that exactly, it's exactly what Sherrington did. He stimulated for five microseconds, I think, or five milliseconds. And that's how he came up with the mapping of the motor cortex in the, in the, uh, um, in the gorilla. <clears throat> and we have... <laughs> Um, really? Yes, and uh, <clears throat> he actually also requested an orangutan, and he got it. Uh, but if you do the same experiment, uh, 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 stimulating for 200 milliseconds, you see stereotype uh, movements of hand gestures in, in macaques. Uh, so if we're go there's this thing of big data being like, well, we're, we're going to get a lot of data, and that's going to be enough. That's going to get the unbiased. Mm -hmm. But if we the, the the big data is just just flashing lights, dots of lights, we're still going to be analyzing um, first order correlations, right? That and and that, that how is that we can develop and, and analyzing like second order correlations, things that are very computationally expensive, even for very small uh, numbers of, of neurons. How, how can we develop? a framework, a mathematical or computer science framework, to extract those so then experimentally see an advantage in doing uh, ex experiments in which you look at, um, at nonlinear co correlations. So you clap twice. I mean, the simplest one is that you clap twice at different intervals. So you just give a, 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 a dimension, right? And, and then you see if, if everything is linear, they will decay the same way, right? The two claps, no matter how different they are in distance. But if they're not, and we know that that's the case in general, uh, you will see nonlinear interactions and resonances and so forth. But uh, it, that, is, that is a very expensive experiment to do. Yeah. Um, and uh, we just need to develop the tools to, to analyze them and compact tools 
uh, to make it a uh, uh, lifetime achievable. So for the for, for neurophysiologists who are just interested in circuits, which is a little bit different than what we were talking about before, where we might be a sensory physiologist, we're interested in animal in the world. So what would you suggest? I mean, I can give an electrical shock, or I can give two electrical shocks, I can give a train of 20 electrical shocks at 100 hertz. You know, I mean, uh, where do I go from there? I think there are a couple of uh, uh, experiments out there. Uh, of course, uh, it has been more into culture cells because you can monitor them for longer periods of time. And the idea is uh, uh, look at uh, um, the, state, the steady state, for example, and, uh, and then just, just monitor this as they oscillate. Or just inject very little current and then see how this, this little current propagates through the network. You can try to do this in a, in a slice, it's just that slices do not live that long. And, and that's an impossibility, right? I mean, I, I, I don't have a, an answer for a slice, but uh, for, for culture cells, there, there's hope. Um, or in vivo. In vivo. In vivo, there is hope, right? Um, th- so then there you can do, um, I mean, and this, these are also um, some old experiments, Instead of waiting three seconds between the stimuli, you run one in, in which you you stimulate the same way, right? And then you wait three seconds between the stimuli, and then you run the same experiment, but you wait one second, right? If you start getting something that looks like memory, like a, people will say that there is a memory trace, uh, then uh, then that is worth analyzing by itself, right? The the, the that gives you a, se- a second dimension, the correlations. Um, but that, that's a paradigm. Uh, that's a that's that's a uh, experimental design um, that we are not doing. So one of the differences about of that is just that it covers a really uh, wide range of time scales. Mm-hmm. In the sensory world, the situation is worse because it's not just time scales, but there's also like visual system. There's spatial dimensions, and then there's color in there, lots of other things, there's attention and uh, arousal, and I don't even be- begin to know all of the dimensions that matter. So in a, in a big data kind of way of thinking, would we just collect uh, neuronal activity in an animal that's just doing whatever animals do under all, every different kind of circumstance? Is that really possible? Yeah, so, so this, I was at an interesting discussion recently where this, exactly this topic came up. What it, 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 was, um, it was a discussion between experimental neuroscientists and um, uh, deep learning uh, computer scientists, electrical engineers in this case. And the, the, the deep learning guys came from uh, essentially a background where even though that's the, the basis of that field is remotely related to neuroscience, it has uh, it's really taken off in a completely different direction. So the discussion really ended up, we went back and back to see where the misunderstanding started. And really, the misunderstanding was, what was difficult for deep learning guys to understand was uh, what the stimuli, the stimuli are that are used in neuroscience, right? They're just because they essentially do exactly the approach that you just suggested, they will take a bunch of images or a bunch of uh, sounds or words and they will let the network uh, try to pick out what is really relevant right? and that's okay in that case because you have 
with the computational power they now have, they can actually do that, right? And so for them to even understand that that in neuroscience would kind of stimuli are used in really simple gradings and so on, they couldn't even fathom that that's something that you would actually use to stimulate a complicated network like the brain. Yeah, but usually one of those, the, the, it's just the flip side, I think. Most of those deep learning networks, really complicated big things, right? And then they classify things in a relatively reduced... Uh, yeah, that's the point. The, the, the output is reduced, yeah. right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's like the, the other end of things. And so now you have a big complicated system. You don't know what's going on. You make the input simple and then trace it forward. And it's pretty analogous yeah. in terms yeah. of that way. It is. And in fact, neuroscientists have always prided themselves on thinking very deeply and cleverly about what kind of stimuli they use in order to because they knew they weren't going to be able to give a whole lot, and they wanted to give the ones that would give them the most information. But so the thing with the, the thing that uh, put a plug in for neuroethology, right, mm -hmm. is the whole point is to think very hard about the behavior. What is the task? And find tasks that animals really do that are uh, restricted enough, yet natural, that the brain is actually doing that. I mean, the other way is to force animals to do some restricted task in terms of a behavioral output, the more of a motor kind of behavioral neuroscience approach. But you can find something, uh, in neuroethology, you find something both on the sensory and the motor side, because it's a behavior that's optimized, that the system is optimized to do, and presumably there's parts of the system that pop out that are particularly optimized to do this very important behavior because it's good for survival. And so you use that as a way to uh, get some contrast to reduce the problem uh, to something that's functionally relevant. Part of our problem is that we don't know what our machine is supposed to do. Right. Whereas the machine learning guys know exactly what their machine right. is supposed to do. And but um, I, think, uh, I think it's very interesting. They would saying that, well... That it's the, re the that the reverse problem is the same as as the forward problem. That's saying that reducing the input is the same as having a, the entire um, parameter space and then reducing the output. That's saying that like the system is kind of ergodic, right? So it doesn't matter if you sample one thing for a long time or if you sample a million things for a very brief period of time, you will get the same distribution. And that, that, that has to be tested because if there are long-range correlations, right, then um, it, uh, you will only get the first passage, right, of those correlations if you just simplify the input. And that's what is happening. Uh, that's what we are learning with uh, LTD, with synaptic plasticity, with vision that, that has been... Uh, that has been oh, the, the concept of the receptive field goes back and forth because of this same issue. But you have to wait until these correlations stabilize to say, oh, yeah, this is a receptive field. Otherwise, it, it depends on which layer you are, right? And at what time after the stimulus uh, onset. So, so it's not the same. Uh, you will not get the same answer, uh, and probably will take even longer time. And we just take into because then you will have to get another another input. Uh, and then you will just study that correlation between th those two inputs, right? But some ways the deep learning kinds of approaches are in some rigid way a multi-scale thing. Those things are set up to look for more spatially, at least the, the things that I'm familiar with. You put multiple layers so you do 
you look at some scale, and then you look at the correlations of the next scale down, and the next layer learns the, the kind of non-trivial correlations of the next scale. So in some ways, the success of those uh, systems is to look at these non-trivial correlations, either in somewhere in your It's problem. like the cat problem with Google Labs, right? I mean, they... they yeah. The computer learned what a cat was. Yeah, and from the scanning. Yeah, but so yeah. So I think that's this slightly different. I don't know whether you design sensory experiments yeah. differently. I don't quite get the connection between the. Well, I mean, the, the, the cat experiment. The cat experiment is like they they the ask they design an algorithm that is like a very deep learning algorithm. Uh, look for a cat, learn what a cat is. Uh huh. Without and then just scan the web where people talk about their cats you, you and then look at the images. YouTube videos, I think it was on YouTube videos. No? Oh, okay, okay. okay. Well, and, cat well, okay. So then they have three, <laughs> and then from there the machine analyze analyze the images and then got rid of everything else that was the background. Uh huh. Like the person clapping and the mice dying, uh, and, and then said, "This is a cat." So, uh, although that's reductive, right? That's, that's exactly what we would like. I mean, I'm not into uh, uh, deep learning, but but that's that's a that's a very interesting so example wonder, of this thing working. What's the relationship between these kinds of things and the sort of stuff that the mathematical things that you do? Because the my impression is that you're not normally using machine learning algorithms, and instead you're taking a mathematician's approach and analyzing a biological system in a rational step-by-step way and you've and you've picked a bunch of different systems there have been genetic oscillators and communities of microbes as well as communities of neurons and uh, what's the common theme to that because maybe that will help us see where is the the, math, the mathematician chooses to place his tool on certain kinds of problems well you know, I have to be honest, and I, the, the way I choose problems is usually I read and, and I find something that's interesting that is related to where I think I can apply the types of approaches I've learned, or I can learn something new, and, uh, and I can go in that direction. Um, so, um, so I like to think about how groups of agents, in this case agents being something relatively... Uh, general it can be um, animals, it can be cells, it can be um, bacteria, bacterial cells. Um, how they can organize and collectively perform something that it would be hard to understand from just looking at themselves, looking at them individually, right? Or just so there's something there that emerges to use a popular word uh, from their interactions, but not only from their interactions, but also from their internal behavior. Something that's uh, that could be an oscillation. That emerges from the interactions of two different populations of bacteria, for, for instance, or can be a computation right, that's, that's performed. Uh, so that's kind of a general theme, right? It's, it's a very general theme that I think uh, encompasses a lot of what life on this planet does, right? Um, <clears throat> so uh, I think that's the general thread. <laughs> so do you have tools? There's a lot of people that do that. Uh, well, like say say Bart Ehrmantraut does that, right. but everything's an os- you know everything's an oscillator or a wave. Basically, everything's an oscillator or a wave. Well, everything is an oscillator. <laughs> uh, maybe, uh, and then he looks around and just sees that, right? 
and, and finds that. And it has the same tool, but it comes down to a lot of the same mathematics. Not completely, I mean, he's, he has a large repertoire, but at its core, a lot of the same mathematics. And uh, I mean, I, I don't know whether you feel that way. You can still have the idea of the same kind of problem and then go find the math that you need that's appropriate. Or you can go around and have a hammer and look for nails. So I don't know how it feels to you. No, I think I think there's different approaches that, that are necessary, and that depends a little bit on both on the level at which you want to examine the the system and on what you're looking for in the system, right? And the pattern generation—that's what art does in different forms—is certainly one aspect of that, right? So when groups of uh, agents interact in some way, they will certainly. Patterns are what can arise, both temporal and spatial patterns. That's one of the things that people have been studying for many years, and uh, it's certainly one of the interesting things that can happen. Uh, you can also ask for a very different, uh, you, know, you can take the same, you know, another aspect of the question is simply how does information propagate through a network, right? And that doesn't necessarily involve a pattern, but it's certainly involved, and then, then you have to understand how is a network structured. For instance, one of, the, one of the things that we've been looking at recently with another student uh, is uh, if you have a network and a particular piece of information, it could be network neurons or agents in general, is a more abstract, but a particular piece of information can travel through multiple routes through the network, right? Uh, now, you, now, every agent that's downstream from where the particular piece of information originates or entered the network uh, receives correlated information, right? Because it can reach it from a uh, routes. Uh, how does the structure of the network determine how much of the original information that particular agent can uncover? Right, for instance, right. So you have now strongly correlated information that reaches you. Can you disentangle these correlations, or are you kind of stuck with them? Um, it's related to these echo chamber effects. Uh, or, and you know, so there, I, I don't think these these qu the question is simply different. Right, you use different tools. There is no oscillations. There is no patterns. But still, you can use mathematics. Uh, to get a pretty good idea, to get a handle on this particular question, right? So again, I don't think there's you you take a tool, mathematical tools to suit a particular question and to suit the particular um, structure of the interactions that you're faced with. Thanks a lot, Krishna and uh, Todd and Fidel. This has been Neuroscientist Talk Shop. You need a tune. <laughs> yeah. Oh, you. Oh yeah, we do. We do.